Tonight, to start out, we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about unmet expectation. Uh, if you have ever done any sort of um, counseling with another person, like couples counseling or premarital counseling or like marriage counseling, if your counselor was worth a penny, they told you that the root of almost all disappointment, the root of almost all conflict in relationships, is unmet expectation. There's kind of like three categories that this fits in. There are spoken and agreed upon expectations um, where both people are aware of what's expected and whether they meet that or not, everyone knows what's going on. Then there's this other category that gets a bit more tricky that you start to run into when you spend a lot of time with the same person and that's unspoken expectations where one person knows what the expectation is and the other person does not. That is very tricky, very hard when you uh, don't meet the expectation that that other person clearly had that you didn't know about. But then there's this third really, really nefarious category, which is unconscious expectations. Expectations that you didn't even know that you had. But you find out real quick when they're not met. This happens especially in romantic relationships, especially once you're living together. You learn real quick that you have expectations that you never, ever knew you had or had ever thought about, uh, like what do cooking and cleaning look like? Uh, what do birthdays and holidays look like? Whose family are we going to spend Christmas with? Uh, who handles finances? What do you do when you see a sink full of dishes? Uh, what is the right and only right way to load a dishwasher? Or, or more important things like uh, what does intimacy look like? Um, how do we raise kids together? Is it ever, ever, ever okay to put a bag of chips back with just crumbs left? And the answer is no, ever. We, you have to be conscious of your expectations so that you can voice them so that you can both come to an agreement about what the expectations are, right? Uh, the point is not to not have expectations. Expectations are natural, they're normal, and they can be really healthy. Uh, but when you know your expectations and they're not met, rather than there being kind of passive-aggressive or just aggressive-aggressive conflict, it's easier to then evaluate your expectations. Like, are these expectations that are valid or that I still want to maintain? Rather than simply being disappointed or upset at the person that let you down. But what do you do about unmet expectations with God? What do you do with those? Do you have expectations of God? Of what it means for your life to follow when, when you follow Jesus? Are you conscious of those expectations? I think it's really important for us uh, to, at the very least, be aware of our expectations for God and name them so that we don't allow our expectations, especially our unconscious expectations, get in the way of us seeing uh, the unexpected ways that God shows up in the world. And tonight uh, we're going to rewind um, to a story that takes place right before Jesus's last discourse, which has been our focus throughout Lent. So we're going to back up to a few days uh, before that when, when Jesus and his disciples enter Jerusalem for the first time or for the last time before Jesus is killed. This is a famous story all about people's expectations, causing them to miss out on the unexpected ways that God shows up in the world. Uh, we're going to be looking at this famous, famous scene from John chapter 12. 
Um, before we get into the story for tonight, uh, there's a little background info that you need to know about. Uh, right before this story takes place, uh, Jesus travels to his friend named Lazarus, who has just died. And Jesus is really good friends with Lazarus and with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus, this is one of the, the more miraculous things that happens in uh, the gospels and certainly in the gospel of John. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He resurrects him. Our story takes place a little bit after that. Jesus has uh, done that for Lazarus and then goes away for a little bit. And now he has come to visit Lazarus and his sisters on his way to Jerusalem. Okay. That's all you need to know about that. This is John chapter 12, starting at verse nine. Word got out among the Jews that he, Jesus, was back in town visiting Lazarus. The people came to take a look, not only at Jesus, but also at Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. So the high priests plotted to kill Lazarus because so many of the Jews were going over and believing in Jesus on account of him. The next day, the huge crowd that had arrived for the feast, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem. They broke off palm branches and went out to meet him and they cheered Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in God's name. Yes, the King of Israel. Jesus got on a donkey and rode it just as the scripture had it. No fear, daughter Zion, see how your King comes riding a donkey's colt. The disciples didn't notice the fulfillment of many scriptures at the time, But after Jesus was glorified, they remembered that what was written about him matched what was done to him. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, when he raised Lazarus from the dead and was giving eyewitness accounts. It was because they had spread the word of this latest God sign that the crowd swelled to a welcoming parade. The Pharisees took one look and threw up their hands and said, this is getting out of control. The world's in a stampede after him. There were some Greeks in town who had come to worship at the feast. They approached Philip, who was the best disciple, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you help us? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. And Jesus answered, time's up. The time has come for the son of man to be glorified. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If any of you wants to serve me, then follow me. Then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice. The Father will honor and reward anyone who serves me. Right now, I am shaken. And what am I going to say? Father, get me out of this. No, this is why I came in the first place. I'll say, Father, put your glory on display. So this is the story of what is called Jesus's triumphal entry, where he's welcomed in Jerusalem for the last time and hailed as king, which is kind of a big deal. Many traditions throughout history and still today uh, commemorate this event on what is called Palm Sunday, like we talked about at the beginning, which was this past Sunday. Maybe you've seen this or you've participated in it growing up, uh, but typically there's some moment in the service where everyone gets palm branches and uh, Jesus's entry into the city is reenacted in some form. Sometimes it's someone carrying a cross and everyone waves their palm branches. Sometimes it's the kids walking through the service carrying palm branches. 
but some way to reenact this moment. And what I've never noticed before, or if I did, I, I've completely forgotten, is that in this story, the crowd's behavior is not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily something that we should be celebrating or reenacting year after year. We read this story and we think, isn't that cool that, that, that this crowd of people recognized who Jesus is and honored him this way. But in fact, this entire story is basically Jesus intentionally completely failing to meet the expectations of this crowd. And the crowd totally misses it. And largely Palm Sunday observances, unbeknownst to just about everyone participating in them, uh, our community is taking part in also missing the point of what's going on here. Now, I don't mean to harp on anyone or, or any community or church that goes all in on Palm Sunday doing some sort of like reenactment of this. Like I said, I am only just realizing this and I, I grew up in church. I was one of the kids walking down the aisle with a palm branch yelling Hosanna, I'm sure at the top of my lungs. My parents were like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? But uh, so thanks to an article that I read this week by a, a guy named Craig uh, Satterley, who's a, a Lutheran bishop in Michigan. Uh, what I want to show you tonight is that in this, this story is far, far more about Jesus basically trolling, honestly trolling this crowd. And, and that, um, than about him being worshiped or recognized for who he truly is. And we just kind of gloss over it. But Jesus says something really important about who he is in this story uh, that, that really has implications for, um, for us when it comes to our expectations of Jesus. So let's talk about what we just read. First, it's important for you to realize that this story of this crowd kind of trying to install Jesus as king echoes back to an earlier story an earlier scene in, in chapter six of John. In that chapter, Jesus has this huge crowd of people that are following him. He goes out into the wilderness. They follow him out there. And all of a sudden it's lunchtime and he realizes everyone is hungry and he scrounges together five loaves of bread and two fish. You've probably heard this story and he feeds well over 5,000 people. There are men, women, and children there. And we're told that there are 5,000 men. So there's way more than 5,000 people. He feeds them all with just these five loaves and two fish and has leftovers. The people are like blown away by this, obviously, because that's crazy. But they start to think like, maybe this, is the, maybe this is the guy who's supposed to fix everything for us. And it says in John 6, Jesus starts to figure this out, that this is what the crowd is thinking. And it says, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. So this is one of the first times we see a crowd trying to make Jesus king. The crowd wanted to force Jesus to be the kind of king that they wanted, and Jesus would have no part of it. Same thing is happening in our reading tonight with this crowd. They want to make Jesus their kind of king. They hear that he's coming to Jerusalem, which means they hope this is the start of the revolution. There's going to be a showdown. Uh, you see at the end of chapter 11, what happens right before our story we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they can arrest him. Now that's a big deal in and of itself, but it's really important to notice that the chief priests and the Pharisees are in completely opposing political parties from one another. 
They're each other's opposition. So anytime we see them working together, we know something is up. This would be like, um, I'm trying to think of politicians off the top of my head. This would be like Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump getting together and agreeing on something. You know that something's wrong if they're both working together. So the Pharisees and the chief priests both want to see, both want to arrest Jesus. Not only that, but we know that they're also plotting to kill Lazarus as we read in our reading to try to cover up the evidence of Jesus's power. Um, They're trying to eliminate any trace of Jesus and the threat that he poses to them just completely. Jesus is kind of public enemy number one. So for him to show up in Jerusalem is a direct attack on the authority of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And the crowd knows this. They hear that Jesus is coming and they rush out to greet him thinking, this is it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. God is going to reestablish the kingdom, David's kingdom. God is finally going to overthrow the, the false king of Israel that was installed by Rome and also the Roman empire. And he's finally going to reestablish the true real kingdom of Israel forever. And so they start shouting to Jesus, these lines from Psalm 118, which basically is them shouting. They shout Hosanna, which means like salvation, God's salvation for us. Here comes God's salvation for us. Here comes God's warrior. The crowd wants to make Jesus their kind of king, a nationalistic, political, militaristic, militaristic king that is coming to overthrow the current government and empire. And once again, Jesus is not going to have any part of it. Before we talk about the like just utterly subversive and genius way that Jesus responds to this, I think it's important for us to reflect um, on how we try to make Jesus our kind of king. No one greeting Jesus with these palm branches wanted or expected him to willingly be crucified. They wanted a revolutionary miracle working military hero, and they were happy to just kind of heap their expectations on Jesus. How do, how do we do the same thing? What are your expectations of Jesus? It's kind of a weird question. What are your expectations for, for your life because of Jesus? Perhaps you have an expectation that you won't suffer or that you'll always eventually be clear on what you should do in life. Perhaps that you will be successful. Maybe uh, that your kids will be safe. Or maybe you have an expectation that that your kids will grow up to be who you hope they'll be because you follow Jesus. What are your expectations of Jesus? Do you know? Because we all have them. And the least we can do is become aware of them and name them. But here's the challenging but good news. Jesus is not worried about meeting your expectations. He doesn't care about being our kind of king. Jesus is committed to being God's kind of king. As Craig Satterley puts it, all Jesus cares about is being God's kind of king. So in our story, rather than flee to the mountainside again to get away from the crowd, this time Jesus enters the city but he does so in the most awesome, subversive 
with the most awesome and subversive twist that is so, so easy for us to miss. Jesus sees the crowd. He sees what they're doing and he decides to ride in on a donkey. He tries to correct the crowd's expectations by alluding back to this prophecy in Zechariah that I read earlier. No fear, daughter Zion. See how your king comes riding a donkey's colt. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to you, right? People rode donkeys back then. It's fine. And, and this scene is really, really serious. It's like deadly serious. But there's also like, maybe I'm just weird, but there is comedy in what is going on here. There is some comedy in just how much Jesus has turned this entire scene upside down. And to help drive this home, I think it's helpful to put this kind of what is happening here in a more modern setting. So, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird. I don't know if you've ever seen a military coup. I haven't in my life in real, in, in real life. I haven't in person ever experienced a military coup, but there have been few, a few in my lifetime in other countries. And the scene that I feel like we always see is something that looks like this, uh, right? A, a, a new leader comes into the capital of the city on top of a tank followed by a lot of other tanks behind him. The leader seizing power comes to the capital of the country, riding a violent power, a violent symbol of his power. So imagine a crowd lining the streets. This is actually Thailand in 2014, by the way. Imagine a crowd lining the streets in the capital, waiting for their new leader, Jesus, to arrive in this huge show of force, in this triumphant entry. And instead, Jesus pulls up in this. A, 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 a Hello Kitty themed tiny little smart car. Like, What on earth is going on? That is kind of what's going on here. The donkey is a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of peace. To the crowd, Jesus should be showing up at least riding a horse, and better yet, riding a chariot, but not a donkey, not a Hello Kitty little smart car. He should be on a tank with a machine gun taking over everything. What, these, what the people in this crowd need is a guy who's going to defeat Herod, the, the current king. They need a guy who's going to defeat the, the Roman Empire, the greatest military that the world has ever seen up to this point. And he comes in alone, riding a donkey. What is this? What this shows us is that, that Jesus is a king, but not the kind that we're expecting. And the crowd completely misses what God is up to here. The disciples themselves, we're told, don't even realize what is going on here until long after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is intentionally saying to them, I am not meeting your expectations. I am not who you think I am and I'm not going to be. What about us? What about you and me? How do our expectations of Jesus keep us from seeing God at work? Because time and time again, God seems to show up in mysteriously unexpected ways, right? If we want to be a part of that, if we don't want to miss what God is, is doing 
and up to in and through and around us. It would do us well to become aware of and name our expectations so that we can evaluate if there are expectations that we actually want to try to hold to or not. And at the very least, hold to them maybe just a bit more loosely so that we don't write off or, or completely miss when God unexpectedly shows up. At the end of our reading tonight, Jesus starts talking about uh, a seed, how every seed must die before it grows or it simply remains a single seed. But if it's buried and planted, it becomes far more than anyone would imagine a tiny single seed could ever become. And Jesus says, this is like our lives. If we cling to them as we want them to be, we will destroy them. But if we relinquish, relinquish our lives, our lives become far more than anyone would imagine forever. I think this is also true for our expectations. If we cling to our expectations for Jesus and our life because we follow him, if we, we stomp our feet and demand what we think should happen, we often miss the unexpected things that he's up to. But if we're willing to be aware of our expectations and hold to them just a little bit more loosely, maybe, just, just maybe, we'll be able to recognize and respond to the powerfully unexpected and seemingly upside down ways that the creator of the universe chooses to show up in our world. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for, uh, thank you for these stories. God, thank you that you, that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. God, thank you that you love us enough to not force yourself upon us, but you humbly and lovingly try to show us who you are over and over and over again. God, I pray that we would be able to understand and recognize uh, the expectations that we hold for you that, that keep us from seeing you because we're so set on our expectations and you show up unexpectedly. God, I pray that we will hold to those just a little more loosely so that we might be able to see you. We love you, God. Amen.